Welcome to the Apologia Podcast, the audio-only archive of the Apologia YouTube channel. Note that some content was designed to go with visuals, but the imagination can be a powerful thing. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider giving it a 5-star rating on the podcast app you're using now to help us reach more people. Or, since this endeavor is ad-free, consider going a step further and supporting us for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash apologia. But for now, let's get to the episode, part of the Apologetic series, posted September 24th, 2021, titled Five Major Problems with William Lane Craig's Kalam Cosmological Argument, featuring James Fodor. Well, in my published work on the uh, cosmological argument, I always try to anticipate and respond to objections that might be raised against the argument. It knows what I know. It might anticipate this move. These criticisms are not found in scholarly journals. Instead, they're found in popular critiques of the argument on the internet and YouTube. Upload your video to YouTube or Vimeo using .move, .avi, or um, .mpg file. They reach thousands of people, and they are confidently touted by many as delivering crushing refutations of the Kalam cosmological argument. These objections are very widespread and therefore very influential. Infidel websites and YouTube are replete with these criticisms. Okay, forget websites and YouTube. What if I ask someone who wrote a book on this? You like books, right, Dr. Craig? Welcome to Apologia, where a former Christian takes a look at the claims of Christians. Of all the Christian apologists active today, perhaps the most vaunted is Dr. William Lane Craig, a scholar who has in the past addressed me personally. He was had a brain-dead Christian faith. And whose most famous argument, the Kalam cosmological argument, I have covered on this channel. But perhaps no one has spent more time studying Dr. Craig than James Fodor author of the book, Unreasonable Faith, How William Lane Craig Overstates the Case for Christianity. And in my view, the argument is fatally flawed. So let's briefly outline five major problems with Craig's defense of the Kalam, showing how he fails to establish the conclusion that the universe had a personal cause. Introduction. The Kalam cosmological argument is an argument for the existence of God that Craig developed during his doctoral work in the 1970s. While it can be formulated in various ways, here I will consider the following version. Premise 1, the universe began to exist. Premise 2, if the universe began to exist, it had a cause. Premise 3, if the universe had a cause, that cause must be a personal agent. And the conclusion, a personal agent caused the universe to begin to exist. There is a simpler form of the Kalam which just ends at premise 2, and hence concludes merely that the universe had a cause. However, since Craig uses the Kalam to demonstrate the existence of God, I believe it is important to make that aspect of the argument explicit by including premise 3. Now, I had thought at first tonight to arrange our world's worst objections into a sort of top five list. Objection number one. The problem of the extent of the present. Craig has stated that when he talks of the universe beginning to exist, he means this in a very specific way. In particular, he means that the universe came into being from a state of non-being. As Craig has said many times, this depends on a particular understanding of the nature of time called presentism. 
According to this view, only the present exists. The past and the future do not exist. The past consists of a series of moments which came into being and then went out of being, while the future consists of a series of moments which will come into being but haven't yet done so. So this view of time contrasts with a competing view known as a tense-less theory of time because on this view, there is no objective present or past or future. Events in time are strung out in a line in the same way that events are in space. And so on this view, it is not as though um, the past was formed one event at a time, one occurring after another. The whole timeline just exists. And our past is just relative to where we are on the line and what is earlier than that point. Under the tenseless theory of time, a universe with a finite age would not have come into being from non-being but would simply be extended a finite time in the earlier-than direction. This means that under a tenseless theory of time, the universe couldn't have begun to exist in the way that Craig believes is necessary for the Kalam to succeed. Because of this, Craig has stated definitively that the Kalam cosmological argument presupposes from start to finish a theory not of tenseless time, but of tensed time. And that presupposes this A theory. On a B theory of time, nothing really ever comes into existence. But I don't think you could run the Kalam argument. According to Craig, presentism, the view that only the present exists, is vital for the Kalam to succeed. But this leads naturally to the question, what exactly counts as present? The problem is that Craig has no sensible answer to this question. One possibility is that the present could consist of an infinitesimally small instant, with an infinite collection of such instants forming a finite interval, like just the set of the real numbers. But this won't work, because it would imply that actual infinities could exist, which conflicts with Craig's many philosophical arguments against the possibility of an infinitely old universe and the impossibility of an actual infinite series. So a second possibility is that the present could exist and consist of a discrete unit of time, with successive discrete presents following one after the other, with no time in between them, just like the natural numbers, 1, 2, 3, and so forth. But this won't work either, as that would mean that somehow God was restricted to act only at those discrete moments, but couldn't act in between them. And that won't do because that's a contradiction of God's omnipotence. So if neither of these possibilities is suitable, what's left? Craig's answer is that the present consists of the present non-metrical interval, the length of which varies depending on the context. He describes this as follows. Quote, the extent of the present depends upon the extent of the entity described as present. The duration stipulated to be present will be an arbitrary, finite duration centered on a conceptually specified instant. End quote. Crate even says that this interval can be further divided into present, past, and future parts. Although creative, this solution is completely absurd. Indeed, it is essentially unintelligible. How could it be the case that we bring into being a period of time just by referring to it? It seems that according to Craig's view, dinosaurs were brought back to life when humans discovered them and began referring to them. Also, if, as Craig claims, only the present exists, then how can there be parts of the present interval that are past and parts that are future, neither of which exist? How can something both exist and not exist? Craig must resolve the problem of the extent of the present if the Kalam has any chance of succeeding. Objection number two. The problem of the relevance of thought experiments about infinity. Craig provides many philosophical arguments for why the universe cannot be infinitely old. These arguments generally consist of thought experiments which aim to provide illustrations of absurd or impossible scenarios that allegedly follow from the assumption that actual infinities can exist. 
Some of these thought experiments, such as Hilbert's Hotel, aim to show that no truly infinite thing can exist in the real world. He invites us to imagine a hotel that has an infinite number of rooms in it. Moreover, he says, imagine that every, uni every room is occupied. Now you have to have that firmly in mind. There is a flesh and blood person in every single room throughout the infinite hotel. Now, Hilbert says, suppose somebody shows up at the guest registry wanting to check in. Uh, the proprietor says, of course, no problem. And he moves the person who was in room one into room two. The person who was in room two, he puts in room three. The person who was in room three, he puts in room four, on out to infinity. As a result, room one now becomes vacant and the new person is easily accommodated. And yet before he came, all the rooms were already full. Craig argues that thought experiments such as this illustrate the absurdity of actual infinities, hence demonstrating that they cannot exist in reality. Another type of thought experiment focuses specifically on infinities produced by processes of successive addition of one item to the next. Since this is the type of process which, according to the argument, would be involved in giving rise to an infinitely old universe. While there are many such thought experiments, one fairly simple example is how one could count down all of the negative numbers ending at today. How could anyone count down all the negative numbers ending at today? Uh, this seems like an absurd task because before he could count any number, he would already have to have counted an infinite number of prior numbers. He just gets driven back and back into the past so that no number ever seems to get counted. So how could somebody finish his countdown today? That's the initial foray that one, one is asking. But then the question is, as I say, if that's a sufficient condition for finishing the countdown, then why didn't he finish his countdown yesterday or the day before that? By then, he'd already had an infinite amount of time to finish his countdown, and so he should already be done. In fact, no matter how far you regress into the past, at every point he should have already finished because he's had an infinite amount of time to finish the countdown. Thus, according to Craig, we cannot make any sense of an infinite count arriving at the present in any particular time. From this, Craig concludes that we should reject the possibility of arriving at the present after an infinitely long count, and hence establishes the impossibility of an actual infinite past. While one can argue the details of any particular thought experiment, there is a more fundamental problem with such reasoning. Any specific example of an absurd or impossible situation can only ever show that that particular case in question is absurd or impossible. For example, Hilbert's Hotel shows at most that infinitely large hotels with movable guests are absurd. Likewise, counting down from infinity shows that it is not possible to begin with an infinitely large set and then subtract one element at a time to eventually reach zero. The crucial question, however, is why should we infer from such cases that the universe cannot be infinitely old? The universe is not an infinite hotel, nor is there some cosmic counter marking down the time from infinity past until the present. Other thought experiments which viewers may have heard about, for example the Grim Reaper Paradox and the Tristram Shandy Paradox, similarly involve bizarre situations such as an infinitely many Grim Reapers appearing or a man writing down an infinitely long diary entry, neither of which are entailed by an infinitely old universe. As such, the most that these thought experiments could ever show is that certain types of infinities or certain situations involving infinities are absurd or impossible, and not that the universe itself must have begun to exist. 
Craig has argued that the relevant aspect of all such scenarios is the notion of infinity itself rather than the specific details, but this can always be disputed. For example, Hilbert's Hotel assumes that infinitely many guests can be moved around, while past events, of course, can't be moved around in this way. The man counting down from infinity past had some starting point that he began counting down from, because after all, that's how counting works. Yet an infinitely old universe would have had no such beginning point. There is thus always a further question about which part of the thought experiment renders it absurd or impossible, and Craig fails to show that this must be the notion of infinity itself. This is a fundamental weakness of this type of argument. Why should we infer that because certain situations involving actual infinities are impossible, that therefore the universe cannot be infinitely old? Objection number three. The problem of the difference between physical and metaphysical time. To supplement his philosophical arguments, Craig also appeals to various results from contemporary cosmology to argue that the best empirical evidence supports the beginning of the universe. The result he most often appeals to is called the borg guth theorem. The borg guth theorem proves that classical space-time, under a single very general condition, cannot be extended to past infinity, but must reach a boundary at some time in the finite past. From this and other related results, Craig infers that modern cosmology tells us that the universe is not eternal, but that physical space and time, matter and energy, came into existence at the point of the Big Bang a finite time ago. The problem with all such arguments is that the borg guth theorem, along with all modern cosmology, is founded upon the general theory of relativity. In general relativity, time is treated as a fourth dimension alongside the three dimensions of space, which can be bent by the existence of massive objects and is affected by relativistic effects such as time dilation. Time is treated in a tenseless manner, with all times existing alongside one another in a four-dimensional space-time. It is very difficult to see how this notion of time can be reconciled to Craig's presentist philosophy of time, according to which the present is an objective feature of reality independent of the matter within the universe, and that the past and the future do not exist. Indeed, in his publications on the philosophy of time, Craig himself acknowledges this, arguing, for example, that metaphysical time would be time that is not dependent upon physical clocks. It would exist and pass independent of any physical realities or mechanisms. It's what Isaac Newton called absolute time. And Newton believed that absolute time flows uh, necessarily independent of any physical processes whatsoever. And I think that we have a kind of knockdown argument for the difference between metaphysical and physical time in the thought experiment of God counting down to the moment of creation. He is also clear that the four-dimensional space-time used in general relativity, quote, serves as a convenient calculational and diagrammatical aid, but says absolutely nothing about ontology. Thinking of reality in four-dimensional terms makes the special and general theories of relativity very easy to grasp. It's easy to make a space-time diagram on a piece of paper in which the horizontal dimension represents space and the vertical dimension represents time, and you can represent the whole process there on a diagram which depicts space-time. And I think many scientists interpret the diagrams as literal representations of reality. The four-dimensional continuum should therefore be regarded as a useful tool, but not as a physical reality. End quote. This means that Craig faces a stark choice. 
If he holds firm to his presentist philosophy of time, then he must give up all the arguments, such as the Borde and Lenker theorem, for the finitude of the past that are based on physical cosmology. On the other hand, if he wishes to keep using these arguments, then he must give up presentism, the very philosophy of time that he believes is essential for the Kalam to succeed. Objection number four. The problem of establishing a cause of the universe. Craig believes that the beginning of the universe must be the effect of a first cause. Well, this may seem reasonable on the face of it. On further examination, it is actually very hard to see how Craig could possibly know such a thing. The most common argument Craig presents in favor of this contention is simply that it is a basic metaphysical principle that something cannot come out of nothing. Yet, this is begging the question. Someone who doubts that the universe had a cause will not simply accept that this is a basic metaphysical principle. Furthermore, Craig's talk of something coming from nothing is inaccurate, as this wording implies that somehow there was nothing, and then the universe just popped into being, as Craig often says. Yet, clearly this doesn't make any sense. There wasn't anything, no time or space, before the universe, so it wasn't as if there was black emptiness and then suddenly there was a loud pop and the universe appeared. Rather, the idea is that if you could somehow go back to the first moment in time, the universe was just already there and didn't require anything to make it exist. It just existed all by itself without any external cause. It appears that Craig has nothing to say about this more reasonable conception of a universe that began without a cause. A second argument that Craig gives in support of the idea that the universe had to have a cause is that we have overwhelming evidence from science and everyday experience that when something begins to exist, it has a cause. Craig therefore argues by analogy, it is therefore reasonable to believe that the universe as a whole must have also had a cause. Such an inference, however, is simply not warranted. Everything we observe in science and in everyday life is some object or process that exists within the universe. The universe as a whole is not analogous to some particular thing within the universe. And so we have no reason to think that just because things within the universe have causes, that therefore the universe as a whole must also have a cause. This is similar to inferring that because every man has a mother, that therefore mankind as a whole must also have a mother. Craig's third and final argument that the universe had a cause asks the question, if universes could come into existence without a cause, then why not anything? Craig asks, why don't bicycles and Beethoven and root beer come into being out of nothing? Yet the answer to such questions is obvious. Bicycles and Beethoven and root beer are things that exist within the universe and have known necessary causes for their coming into being. By contrast, the universe is not something that exists within the universe and does not have known necessary causes, but instead it's just the totality of space and time and matter itself for which it is unknown whether there is any necessary cause. It is therefore entirely unsurprising that things do not pop into being within the universe. This doesn't tell us anything about whether the universe itself required a cause, since obviously the universe would not have come into being inside the universe, because that doesn't make any sense. Craig's arguments notwithstanding, the question therefore remains, why couldn't the universe have simply began without a cause? Objection number five. The problem of non-personal timeless causes. Building upon the first two premises of the Kalam, Craig also argues that if the universe had a cause, that cause must be a personal agent. Craig argues that only an immaterial mind with libertarian free will could have the ability to bring about the beginning of a temporal series of events, i.e. create the universe, from an existing timeless state. To justify this, Craig argues first that the cause of the universe obviously can't be an event in time, because then this would just be part of the universe and would require its own cause. He also argues that the cause of the universe could not have been an impersonal timeless state because any effect caused by such a state would have to be co-eternal with the cause. Why did the effect only begin a finite time ago if the cause is eternal? How can you have a, an eternal cause 
but an effect that only has a beginning a finite time ago. According to Craig, therefore, only an agent with libertarian free will could exist timelessly and then, by exercising their libertarian agency, bring about an effect that exists in time. Such an explanation leads naturally to the question, what is so special about libertarian agency? Why can't some timeless, non-personal entity be the cause of the universe? Why does it have to be a personal agent? Craig's answer is simply that libertarian agents have a special type of causal power called agent causation, and only agent causation can bring about a temporal effect from a timeless cause. Why is that the case? Craig doesn't appear to have any clear answer for this other than his assertion that this is just the way it is. For example, he claims, A personal agent who is endowed with freedom of the will and who can therefore freely will to create spontaneous new effects that aren't determined by any prior uh, antecedent conditions. So the cause of the universe can be a personal agent who freely wills to create a universe with a beginning. And this act of creating is a freely willed act that doesn't have any prior determining conditions. So it can be something that's spontaneous and new. Uh, for example, to return to our illustration, let's imagine uh, a man who has been sitting from eternity and he suddenly wills to stand up. And so you would have an effect with a beginning, namely his standing, arise from a cause which is eternal and has always been there. Effectively, this amounts to asserting that agent causation, and only agent causation, can bring about a temporal effect from a non-temporal initial state, because agent causation is just special that way. Needless to say, I do not find this to be a very persuasive argument. Indeed, I can see no reason why any sort of timeless cause could not function as the cause of the universe. Why could the cause not be some kind of timeless quantum field, such as is postulated by certain models in quantum cosmology? Or possibly it could be an immaterial entity driven by instinct, such as the gunyas from Hindu philosophy. Or maybe it could be a metaphysical force, like the Tao from Chinese philosophy. Or perhaps it could be abstract information with causal powers, as scholars like Paul Davies have recently argued. Or just as likely, it could be something else entirely that we haven't even conceived of yet. Craig relies entirely on his own personal intuition that a personal agent is the only sort of thing that could bring the universe into being without even considering these other possibilities. Indeed, it seems on the face of it highly unlikely that we humans could have any reliable method of knowing what exists outside of the universe. Yet Craig not only claims to know this, but claims to have come to this conclusion on the basis of reflection and intuition without even needing to do any scientific research or empirical investigation. As such, I believe Craig's argument as to why the cause of the universe must be personal is entirely unpersuasive. He seems to have no persuasive answer to the simple question, why can't a non-personal, timeless entity be the cause of the universe? Conclusion. Craig's Kalam cosmological argument faces major problems. This can be summarized as a series of questions. First, what is the temporal extent of the present? Craig needs to provide a cogent answer to this question before he can develop a philosophy of time that is necessary for the Kalam to work. Second, how can we determine that because certain situations involving actual infinities are impossible or absurd, that therefore the universe cannot be infinitely old? This difficulty in making the leap between hypothetical thought experiments and the finitude of the past is a major limitation of philosophical arguments for a beginning of the universe. Third, is the notion of time in general relativity equivalent to real metaphysical time? It seems that Craig must answer no to this question if he is to maintain his presentist philosophy of time, and yet, such an answer means that he cannot appeal to scientific results, which depend on general relativity, to establish the beginning of the universe. 
Fourth, why can't the universe just begin without a cause? Craig's quip that from nothing nothing comes is not a sufficient answer, since the real question is not whether the universe could have popped into nothing, but whether the universe could simply have begun a finite time in the past without needing any external cause. Fifth, why can't a non-personal, timeless entity be the cause of the universe? Craig asserts that only an immaterial mind with libertarian freedom can cause a temporal state to begin from an initial timeless state, but he has no non-circular justification for this, and simply ignores the many other possible causes that could have brought about this effect. Unless Craig is able to provide cogent and consistent answers to these five questions, his Kalam cosmological argument will continue to be plagued by major unresolved problems, and therefore fail to persuade skeptics, such as me, that God is the best explanation for the origin of the universe. That's just the short version. For an incredibly detailed scholarly breakdown of all of Dr. Craig's most popular arguments, check out James's book, Unreasonable Faith, How William Lane Craig Overstates the Case for Christianity. Or at least subscribe to his YouTube channel where James analyzes the latest apologetics. Or the next time you have eight hours to spare, might I recommend his full-length Kalam argument collaboration with Digital Gnosis. Every video may begin to exist, but some continue into future infinite. Until next time. Well, thank you very much for coming and sharing this time this evening. Later. Thank you.